0: Well, there's a sudden silence, and I think people must be uh, ready to begin. Uh, And here's George Scott Christian, and we have saved a seat for him, right here. This is a session that everyone has been looking forward to the uh, reading and the writing of biography and seen from different perspectives. Uh, this is a session that uh, Bat Sparrow originated, and it's his idea, and he represents government, political science, Bill Brands, of course, in the history department, and Ellen Kunimkrupa represents the HRC. Uh, and so let's, uh, be thinking about questions that we can ask our distinguished uh, panelists, because this is a, uh, we've asked them to speak only briefly, so that we can get a good discussion going about different types of biography, and for that matter, biographies that you've recently read. Matt, we'll start with you.
1: While I'm waiting for the um, lectern, we just say thank you for Roger, and thank you for coming. Thanks. As a political scientist who is interested in general concepts rather than ideographic research, my decision to write a biography induced a degree of self-consciousness and introspection. Why was I writing biography rather than embarking on other kinds of scholarship, once more consistent with social science, scholarship I had been engaged with previously and have been subsequently? What were my unquestioned inclinations and intuitions that led me to write a biography? More generally, what can be said about biography as a method and genre? And I'm happy to have this occasion to explore this topic. I actually think Roger deserves the credit. And joined by Bill Brands, who, in my count, has written two dozen books, including eight biographies, and two joint biographies, and Dr. Ellen Cunningham Krupa, the Ransom Center's Associate Director for Preservation and Conservation. So I'm looking forward to our conversation and your conversation. So what are the, some of the attractions and limits of biography? Biography brings an immediacy, an invaluable context, and necessary meaning to inquiries of politics and government, just as it does for investigations of science, religion, business, sports, and other aspects of human life. It makes the subtleties of and shifts in interpersonal relations and the juxtaposition of seemingly unrelated events tangible and consequential particularly if the subject is well known in an accomplished woman or man. If the great doors of history swing on tiny hinges, to paraphrase Max Weber, biography sheds, shines light on those hinges. It does so in a compelling way, moreover, at least a well-constructed biography of a person worth reading does, given that a life nar- narrative is such an obvious and direct way by which a layperson can ex- understand someone else. Biography illuminates and elaborates on the human condition for those we care about or for those who we are convinced to care about. The enduring appeal of good biographies is, as I see it, wholly unsurprising. And this was its attraction to me. If I were to study how decisions were to be made about national security by presidential administrations of the post-World War II era and to determine how U.S. foreign policy decision-making evolved and are shifted during the Cold War and then after the Cold War and up till and after 9-11, biography seemed a compelling means by which to do so. That being said, biographies constitute an odd sort of scholarship. As Virginia Woolf exclaimed in reference to writing about her friend Roger Fry, my god, how does one write a biography? Biography, as one student of political biography writes, I'm sure she didn't use that voice. As a subjective and highly interpretive method, it is without explicit theory. It does not offer testable hypotheses. It contains no limit on what can or cannot be used as evidence, and it has no established criteria by which to gauge its quality. Consider the divided reactions to the first volume of Niall Ferguson's two-volume biography of Henry Kissinger. Instead, the biographer has to sort through numerous accounts of the subject's career and settle on a final version that imposes order and structure. The biographer has to organize her or his evidence novel fashion so as to tell the tale he or she wants to tell. The biographer then has to draft that version as if it was the story. In other words, life is packaged in biography, the loose ends snipped off. Consequently, it can never mirror the messiness of a subject's life. With the many ways open to assessing and interpreting someone's life, then, the phrase creative nonfiction is (laughs) apposite. These features make biography vulnerable to writers who have political or ideological agendas, of course, and cause uh, readers to have different assessments of biographies. I mentioned uh, Caro and Ferguson. We can, think of, um, uh, so we can think of The Path to Power, Robert Caro's uh, biography of the early, early Lyndon Johnson, or To a Rising Star, David Garrow's biography on Barack Obama. For these reasons, we speak of the best biography according to a number of criteria, the best in terms of the coverage of a, someone's personal life, her professional life, his political acumen, her interpersonal style, and so forth. Given the latitude biography allows, its intrinsic openness to content and interpretation, It is unsurprising, then, that they get used for political, ideological, or other objectives. At its best, though, biography shares with much of social science, and I think it's fair to say most scholarship, a conscious effort to describe, explain, and interpret phenomena. Here, a person's life based on, quote, inevitably partial or imperfect information about the real world, unquote. This may not amount to encompassing theory. It does make such theory possible. And it does so in a manner that makes the complex, and consequential accessible. So what does a biographer need? How should he or she proceed? So what are some rules of thumb as I see it? One is that the biographer needs to be honest about the subject, to be fair in the collection and interpretation of evidence. That the biographer be diligent is as assumed. A large component of this honesty is having an open mind about the cumulative record of the subject and how, what it amounts to. A critical biographer may become more sympathetic over time according to where the record leads and how the, uh, the facts lend, themsel- lend themselves to be interpreted. Gene Strauss had a preconceived notion of J.P. Morgan as a cynical tycoon, but after years of work, as Hermione Lee tells it, Strauss came to embrace a fuller and more complex understanding of the financier. The biographer should also approach the subject with sympathy, charity even. The biographer attempts to understand the subject on his or her own terms. It's not to be expected that she or he understands or improves of all that the subject does, but it is to be expected that the biographer tried to do so. Even for a psychopath, the burden of the biographer is to communicate the kind of world in which the subject inhabits for his own actions to make sense. Nixon may not be a psychopath, (laughs) but he is a good example. Having read several biographies and accounts of his life and of his presidency, he's at once, it seems to me, pathetic his emotional deficits and psychological needs, and yet oddly admirable for his perseverance and willpower. Not unrelatedly, another quality is imagination. The The biographer studies a different period of history, foreign places, unfamiliar circumstances, and unknown people. Like history, biography has to recapture the era of which the subject was part. And so many subtitles of biography refers to the subject's life and times this is not unlike good ethnography compelling historical fiction quality science fiction or the best travel writing the biographer has to convincingly portray the subjects world and what his or her life was like and this takes a certain emotional and intellectual imagination the very human tasks of ascertaining another's personality and character ambitions and passions and hopes and demons empathy in a word furthermore the biographer not only needs to be hard-working as i have suggested but as importantly, resourceful, especially for less well-known and less public figures. In the absence of clear criteria of what evidence to use, the biographer is compelled, or should be compelled, to look at as many relevant sources as possible, whether transcripts, medical records, oral histories, records and testimonies of less obvious tangential features, and should interviews be called for, or possible, the testimonies and answers of family, friends, colleagues, opponents, and even antagonists. Interpretation. The biography has to, has to be willing to articulate what he or she knows and to make her implied judgment. Facts don't obvi- obviously don't speak for themselves, and it falls on the biographer to organize, prioritize, and signal what his or her evaluation is of the subject. So a recent biography of George H. W. Bush wrote of Iran-Contra and Bush's complicity and stated that Bush's behavior was beneath him. Some might think that John Meacham has it wrong, but the biographer addressed the issue and took a position. Corollarily, the biographer needs to be willing to say what she or he doesn't know. Better that than dissemble or ignore an important point or event. Implicit with interpretation, then, comes organization and discernment, that the biographer not cram in as much detail as possible, even if she has all the facts. Interpretation requires discipline and discrimination, in other words, lest the biography approximate Arnold, Arnold Toynbee's history as one damn thing after another. And certainly I've read biographies that more or less do this, proceeding chronologically. And I'm sure you have too. Style. This means writing and rewriting and rewriting. Stylistic quality, the seamlessness and effectiveness of the prose probably goes without saying, but good writing greatly adds to the reader's attraction to the subject and trust in the biographer. It's uh, helpful, obviously, here to have others' eyes, preferably preferably those that are knowledgeable, critical, and kindly. but just leave it said, that good writing you think would be automatic, but often it's not, and it's not a given. Um, so how does this list of traits mat- match Hermione Lee's proposed rules of behavior? She gives 10 early on in her, in her Oxford short, short study of biography. Some of hers I would take for granted as being truthful, identifying sources, not censoring oneself, covering the entire life. She does not include sympathy, imagination, interpretation, resourcefulness, or writing style among her rules, but I think that resourcefulness and an effective writing style would be assumed for her. She adds detachment, that is, being objective and removed from the subject. And I, my answer is sort of yes and no. Yes about being honest and taking the evidence to where it leads, as with Strauss writing on J.P. Morgan, but no insofar as it would seem to be impossible at the end of the day. Lee herself writes about being intimidated by Virginia Woolf and concedes that she cannot be objective about her subject, for with any decision about how to write a biography comes commitment. With Wolfe, for example, biographers can start at the source, with Wolfe's family history and see her in the context of ancestry, country, and class. They can start with Bloomsbury, fixing on her social and intellectual group and its reputation. They can start by thinking of her as a victim, as an incest survivor, and someone who's later gonna kill herself. They can start with a theory or a belief, and see her always in terms of that belief, since like Shakespeare, she is a writer who lends herself to infinitely various interpretations. My point is that with a perspective attends a particular relationship of the biographer to the subject, and if there is sympathy and imagination, the biographer, spending years of work in many cases, cannot possibly be detached or at least not have detachment among the foremost descriptors. Let me just add sort some of amusing incident. I might add luck or serendipity. I was using the National Security Archive affiliated with George Washington University and there was a large collection in storage off-site called the GHWB Interviews, and I thought that sounded very promising since Bush 41 was perhaps Brent Scowcroft's best friend. I requested the ref- records, they arrived the next day, and lo and behold, they contained dozens of interviews on origins and evolution of nuclear competition with the U.S. and Soviet Union, on, and sp- particularly how to cite nuclear missiles so they would be invulnerable to a Soviet first strike. The interviews had a wealth of detail on all the schemes to house the ICBM arsenal, some of you may remember this, in airplanes, underwater, on a railroad loop in the Nevada desert, other plans, and so forth. And this material valuably informed my chapter on the Scowcroft Commission, that is the President's Commission on Strategic Forces. What is amusing is that I had transposed the letters of the collection. Perhaps because of dyslexia or wishful thinking, they were the WGBH files, interviews for a thirteen-part PBS documentary on war and peace in the nuclear age, first broadcast in 1989, and were it not for that material. And why would I look at the GBH? And why would I look at video media as a as a even tertiary source? Uh, there you are. So, what about a couple things I want to get to, and then we'll turn over to, to Bill Brands and 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 um, Ellen cunningham krupa A clear what about the difference between writing a, about a living or a or a deceased figure? And it seems to me there are clear trade-offs. Living su- subjects bring freshness; evidence is more readily available, if possibly more disorganized, and the subject has a currency. In the case of Scowcroft, this gave me because I could ask for his permissions. I had could look at his Army, Air Corps, and Air Force officer efficiency reports, his academic transcripts from West Point, Ogden High School, and Columbia uh, University, uh, his PhD program, his military medical records, and I could have access to his friends and colleagues for interviews. There's also an advantage to being the first mover. There was no. Uh, previous comprehensive biography of Scowcroft, so, so it was open terrain. Now this could be a disadvantage to have nothing to react to. Still, I think it would be harder to write something new about a Washington, Franklin, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, FDR, or other famous political figure than to write about someone a little more obscure and not um, sort of uh, top line. Probably the greatest advantage to writing about living or uh, contemporary subject, as I've suggested, is it allows for interviews. Interviews enable the biographer to flesh out the needed color and detail, to follow up on documentary records and secondary sources that may be inconsistent, and to fill in crucial gaps. The archives can not always be trusted. Things get pulled or destroyed. Some uh, policymakers lard the files, put in memos that actually are just coincidental and not necessarily justify what decisions being made. And a lot of business, I found, was done verbally, without paper or electronic documentation. And many materials may still be classified and closed, and in that case, interviews supply needed background, and they can reconcile differences. At the same time, writing on a living or recently deceased person has its drawbacks. With recency, there comes reduced perspective. Consider biographies of Eisenhower versus those of Obama, for instance. There's also greater risk. With interviews, the biographer might go native. That is, the more the biographer talks to the subject and her friends and colleagues and family <coughs> members, the greater the likelihood that she or he will unduly s- sympathize with the subject. Alternatively, or perhaps additively, the biographer might be played. Those being interviews might offer skewed interpretations of people and events, withhold important evidence, or outright mislead, just as memoirs, oral histories, autobiographies, and some biographies do. These factors could well lead the biographer to make inaccurate analyses and draw mistaken conclusions, thereby lending unwarranted support to particular positions or interpretations, and be overly favorable to the subject's uh, image and reputation. With a living subject, too, um, there hasn't been time enough for for classified materials, which was my in- case. And there are insufficient numbers of MRs, or mandatory views or FOIAs, freedom of, of information requests. And so uh, one has less of a, a paper trail to work with. I also had to do without Skowcroft's personal papers and financial records. A living or a contemporary subject also means a distinct audience, the subject of her family, friends, um, Family, family members, friends, and close colleagues. Writing of a long-deceased subject imposes no such constraints, or perhaps only minimal constraint. And I wanted to be fair to this additional audience. A related hazard then is because of this audience of contemporary friends and family members. Those who speak to the biographer may censor themselves, aware what they say might have, may appear in print and <coughs> affect their ongoing relationships with the subject and her associates. In my case, this meant being more fuddle, uh, more fuddle, more subtle, <laughs> leaving crumbs, <laughs> la- leaving crumbs for the reader. At one point, I wrote that Scowcroft's career simultaneously involved giving strategic advice, serving on presidential commissions, uh, being uh, uh, um, employed on corporate boards, and working on behalf of some of the largest companies in the world with Kiss- Kissinger uh, Associates and with the Scowcroft Group. I wrote that if anyone could pull off Such juggling, it was Scowcroft, with his extraordinary ability to compartmentalize. One reviewer wrote that this showed that I was overly enamored with my subject. Mine was a different point, though. A signal that Scowcroft did have such conflicts of interest, and that it remained an open question as to how separated his considerations were. And I can elaborate that on that. some other examples of that later on. Notwithstanding this list of pros and cons, I felt I had little choice but to write about Scowcroft when he was then in his 80s. Not only was he still in good shape, he wrote little about national security unlike a Kennan, Kissinger, or Brzezinski. And he hadn't written his memoirs unlike Cheney, Rice, or Rumsfeld. I also feared that I would lose details about his childhood and early life, and given that his siblings, parents, and neighbors were all deceased or incapacitated. Revealingly, 15 of my interviewees have already passed away, and Scowcroft himself has had a series of sm- small strokes. So let me say a final word about re- reviews since I previously mentioned the subject. Having read countless reviews, book reviews and written a couple of dozen of my own, a few things come to mind. One is that the reader deserves the, the reviewer's perspective. It is no service to the reader if the reviewer only summarizes the book, even as many reviewers do just that, which to be clear, should be the majority of the review. Is the book worth reading? Is it well researched? Is it well executed? The best reviews compare the book under review to other works on the same subject, although I find this to be surprisingly uncommon. The more knowledgeable, the more informed the reviewer, the better the probability of a fair reading and evaluation. Book reviews are also surely going to be misleading and possibly wrong. They're going to irritate the author, and for two very good reasons. One is that the reviewer often has to read a lengthy book and come to an evaluation with the evaluation of that book within the space of a few weeks, where the reviewer not infrequently postpones this task to the very last minute. Distortions are to be expected, then, because the reviewer has to write hurriedly and say something original. Unsurprisingly, in this condensation and, and work, they often get parts of the book wrong and make unwarranted criticisms. And you see this in reviews and subsequent letters in the TLS and New York Review of Books and other venues, also in the reviews of my own work. Um, the other reason is structural. Short reviews are necessarily unrepresentative of the whole. A reviewer has to condense the discussion of the whole book in several hundred or a few thousand words. He or she chooses to write about some things and ignore others, so it's ne- necessarily going to be distortion and misrepresentation. Rarely will the reviewer's pro- priorities accord with the author's. But the reviewer does nobody any favors by refusing to criticize in the pursuit of high standards. and I tend to be fairly critical of my own reviews. It's not that I am criticizing a book for not being the one I would have written. It is rather that if I know something about the subject, then the book should not be inconsistent with or ignore that knowledge. Or if it is inconsistent, for example, a recent book I reviewed about Puerto Rico and citizenship and immigration to the U.S. mainland, uh, then it should be able to persuade me of its new understanding. It is the reviewer's responsibility to be forthright and fair and charitable, to be sure, presuming the significance of what we study. Simply put, does the author accomplish what he or she has set out to do? There's always, almost always room for criticisms, then, given the many perspectives on a person or topic and consequently the many choices authors have to make. British reviewers, in this respect, tend to be more forthcoming than Americans. In political science, and I sp- cannot speak of history or literature, there's all too often mutual back-scratching, and reviews are mostly uncritical. There may, there may be no place for nastiness, but there is surely plenty of room for engaging in dialogue on the study of important people and topics. So what should a potential reviewer do then? I would advocate that potential reviewers accept only if he or she is somewhat knowledgeable in the subject, and as long as the review allows for a decent word count and sufficient time to completion. The venue matters, too, of course. Having said that, reviews are quite valuable, a loss leader in business parlance. They take time to do well, but people read them, they establish the reviewer's credibility, and they show that the reader, reviewer, is a smart, serious, and well-informed scholar, whatever the rank. They are a relatively easy way to engage in discussions about the substance and process of scholarship, discussions that we should all want to be a part of. Thank you. Bill
2: Brennan. Okay, thank you. Bat has said many things with which I agree, a few things with which I disagree, and I'll get to that in a moment. Um, but first i would like to say how i came upon biography and i will admit that my motivation was principally mercenary i in sometime in about the mid 1990s i had this idea that i wanted to write a multi-volume history of the united states i had gotten 10 years so i you know done that stuff and i was thinking big And I had been teaching surveys of American history from the time I started teaching high school in the mid-1970s. And so I I liked the idea of surveying a broad field. And American history is a big story. So I remember attending a convention of the American Historical Association and going through the assembly hall where the the publishers have their booths and striking conversations with a few publishers. And and I was talking to trade publishers at this point, because again, I'd gotten tenure and I want to reach to a broader audience. And I proposed this idea of writing a history of the United States, and I had said, about, oh, I don't know, five or six volumes. And the, the publisher just laughed and said, nobody does that. If, you know, nobody would publish it, and if anybody had published it, nobody would read it. And said, who do you think you are anyway? Will Durant? <laughs> Now actually when I I tell this story, before I say Will Durant, usually I say, now I will be able to guess the age of some of the people in the audience, depending on your reactions. For the younger ones here, you'll know but you might not know Will Durant, with Ariel Durant as the authors of The Story of Civilization, which is I can't remember how many volumes. And I knew that the but many volumes. And I knew that the expected answer to the question, do you think you're Will Durant was no, no, of course not. But My silent answer was, yeah, that's exactly who I want to be. Because I had read all those volumes, and I was entranced. I thought the idea of being carried across a broad sweep of history by an engaging guide, what could be more enjoyable than that? And that's what I wanted to do. But I was relatively young in the profession, and I was sufficiently discouraged for the time being to set my project aside. But after thinking about it for a year or two, I realized, wait, There's another way to do this. I'm going to write this history of the United States in six volumes, but I'm not going to tell anybody, including my publisher, that I'm doing it. And I'm going to do it under a different form. I'm going to do it in the form of biographies. And so I took my first stab at a biography with the person that I thought was the most colorful, interesting figure in all of American history. And you will have your own thoughts on who this might be, but the one I came up with was Theodore Roosevelt. And Theodore Roosevelt is a wonderful subject for a historian, because although he became president, the presidency was the least interesting part of his life. In fact, some of you, perhaps, will have read Edmund Morris's three-volume biography of Theodore Roosevelt. And the first volume is fantastic. It gets Roosevelt up to the presidency. The second volume on the presidency is pretty pedestrian. And actually, this betrays the fact that Morris, I mean, I've heard him admit that he finds politics boring. Well, if you're going to write a biography of a president, that's a potential drawback. (laughs) And then the third volume, when Roosevelt is no longer president, the post presidential years, that's really good too. But anyway, so I decided to write about Theodore Roosevelt. And I had no particular preconceptions or expectations. When I started writing a biography, I just started. OK, we'll start at the birth and wind up at the death and see what's in between. I had no particular theory. I had no particular axe to grind. I didn't consider myself to be a fan or a critic of Theodore Roosevelt. And here I will differ with that in that I think that detachment is important, or at least it's been important to me. I try to keep an arm's length distance from my subject. And this because, and here I differ from perhaps BAT, and from many historians, in that I get really uncomfortable being placed in a position of sitting in judgment on the past. And this applies whether I'm talking about an individual or an entire generation. I think that the judgments we make tell us very much less about history than they do about ourselves. And, for example, when I wrote a biography of Ronald Reagan and people had strong views about my biography of Ronald Reagan, but most of the strong views had relatively little to do with my book. They had everything to do with Ronald Reagan. And this, by the way, is one of the occupational hazards of writing biographies, that you tend to get reviewed, especially if you're writing about someone about whom people still care that the reviews tend to be the reviews of the subject rather than of the book. And so I thought that my Reagan biography took it pretty much right down the middle. And I'll admit that when Reagan was president, I was skeptical of his policies. I didn't agree with his policies much. But, and I, I won't say that I agreed with his policies anymore after writing the book. But for me, that was not the point. The point was to make Reagan understandable to readers. And I made a point of leaving to my readers the task of judging Reagan's policies, and therefore, to some extent, judging Reagan himself. And I would like to think that readers who liked Reagan would find something in there to both support their views, but also to challenge their views, and likewise for people who didn't like Reagan. Anyway, so I I will actually say this, too, that I think most readers, of biographies, I'm suspect that most readers of history actually do want their authors to take sides. And I had high hopes for my Reagan biography commercially, but unfortunately it fell between the two stools of, well, the the pro-Reagan camp and the anti-Reagan camp. But more on that. My first biography, the one on Theodore Roosevelt, did pretty well. And speaking of reviews, So the best review I got was by Paul Johnson, who reviewed the book in the Wall Street Journal. And he wrote, and the authors are looking for those one-liners, those pull quotes, that they can lift from the review and put on the cover of the paperback. And as soon as I read Johnson's review, I thought, okay, this is is going on the top of the cover of the paperback. And he said, Every red-blooded American must read this book. You can't do any better than that. But the irony was that I could tell from reading the review that he hadn't read the book. Because, because the review, well, exactly. I thought, OK, maybe he was giving himself an out because he's a Brit. But but that, fortunately, I think that was lost on most of the, most of the people who saw the quote. But, But this is the sort of thing that happens. It turned out that he was working on his own biography of Theodore Roosevelt. Or maybe it wasn't a biography, but something about Theodore Roosevelt. So he was very enamored of Roosevelt. And there was enough positive in there, I guess, to suit his taste. Anyway, so I decided I was going to write this history of the United States in the form of biography. And volume, it turned out not to be volume one in the series, but the first one that I wrote was about Theodore Roosevelt. And it went well enough that my publisher said, well, let's do another one. (laughs) <laughs> so, then I decided, who's the second most interesting figure in American history? And I actually posed the question to a number of people. And the answer that popped up in several occasions was, what do you think?
0: Benjamin Franklin.
2: Benjamin Franklin. Oh. Benjamin Franklin. And by the, time, by the time I hit on Franklin, I realized, okay, now I started to map out how this history project would take form. So Benjamin Franklin would be volume one in the series. And it's a biography of Benjamin Franklin, but it's also a history book. And here I will observe that every biography is a life and times. And biographers tend to come to their subjects from one of two directions, or three if we count political scientists. But they, can, they tend to come from either the ranks of historians or from journalism. And If you read a biography and you're thinking along these lines, it's usually not hard to tell if this biography is by a historian or it's by a journalist. And the analogy that I draw is in cinematography, so if you're shooting a a film, the journalist biographies, they tend to keep their subjects in pretty tight focus. So you see your subject and not much around your subject. Whereas the historians, they tend to back out a little bit, so you see much more of the context. So with the historian, I'm the historian writing the biographies here, these biographies are as much the times as they are the lives. And this because I had this sort of hidden agenda, which was to write these books that add up to a history of the United States. So, and in thinking about my subjects, I didn't, I deliberately tried not to impose particular themes on the subjects, but the choice of my subjects and the careers and lives of my subjects lent themselves to particular themes. So the book that I wrote about Benjamin Franklin came, it wound up with the title The First American. And I employed the title The First American in part because, primarily, because Benjamin Franklin was born an Englishman and died an American. And this is the thing that has to be explained in American history in the 18th century. How did these colonies become an independent country? I also use the the title in a second sense, that, that Benjamin Franklin was the most celebrated American of his generation. So he was first in that regard. So this is the story that I try to tell with Benjamin Franklin. And it gets me from his birth in 1706 to his death in 1790. Now knowing that my biographies are going to have to form this more or less seamless history. I'm on the lookout for, so who is going to be volume two? Who's going to be my next subject? Now, I need someone who is an adult or stepping onto the adult stage at the time my previous subject steps off, that is, dies. So who's an adult in 1790 and And who can carry the story of American history? And for me, this is crucial. Now, when I started out, I had no idea and no intention of writing mostly about presidents of the United States. It turned out that five of my six biographies were about presidents. And partly, this reflected that mercenary motive in that presidential biography is an understood niche. And if you want books to sell, first of all, you have to sell the idea to a publisher, so the publisher will get behind putting it out there. And when I began this, I did not consider myself a presidential biographer, in part because I was fully aware that in the field of academic history, there is no such thing. I mean, in the field of academic history, there's hardly just a biographer, but let alone a presidential biographer. But for the, the public at large, presidential biographer, that makes a lot of sense. So. My second volume was about Andrew Jackson. And this because Andrew Jackson was 23 years old when Benjamin Franklin died, you might well ask. So why do they have to be adults? And the answer is I don't do childhoods very well at all. And here I will take issue with the comment that the bat cited that you've got to do justice to all parts of the life. No, you don't. You just have to write about the stuff that's interesting and important. And here I tell my students, my writing students in particular, of a story that is ascribed to Elmore Leonard, the the mystery writer who died a few years ago. And the story goes that Leonard would write a draft of whatever his novel was, and he would hand it off to his first reader, who was his wife. And his wife would read it and hand it back with the same one-line comment every time. And that one-line comment was, take out the boring stuff. So I concluded that just because something happened doesn't mean you have to write about it. And, and, and also because, as I say, childhoods don't tell me in most cases. They don't tell me. Maybe they tell other people. Maybe they tell more insightful biographers than me. Um, they don't tell me much about the adult. Um, sometimes you get it, but very often you don't. In, in the case of Theodore Roosevelt, yes. He spent much of his life trying to sort of live down his, his weak, as he saw it, unmanly childhood. And that explained a lot about the man he became. But in the case of Franklin Roosevelt, OK, he had a sheltered. Sorry, I ended up writing about Franklin Roosevelt. So, um, he had a sheltered childhood. And he has some cute letters that he wrote home from camp. But once you quote one of those, you know that's about all I, as the author, or I think readers need. Anyway, so I wrote about Andrew Jackson. And in the case of Andrew Jackson, I began thinking of my biographies as having to describe a task of American history, because I'm a teacher of American history. and, And what happens during the life of this individual? What happens in the life of the generation that the individual represents? Well, in the case of Andrew Jackson, it's the emergence of American democracy. So this is the story. Andrew Jackson is the first ordinary man to become president of the United States. And he establishes a model for American politics Um, that we're still living with today. I wrote about Ulysses Grant as a third volume, although he he was the second to the last one that I actually wrote. And in that case, so Andrew Jackson dies in 1845. So I've got to get somebody who can pick up the story in 1845. And I had already written about Theodore Roosevelt. So Theodore Roosevelt was going to be volume four in the series. And Theodore Roosevelt graduates from college in 1880. So I've got a gap. Basically, the coverage I need is 1845 to 1880. And what's the story that has to be told there? Well, it's the story of the Civil War, the sectional crisis, the Civil War, and Reconstruction. And this this was critical for me. Because as a teacher of American history, I, I am bothered every year. I teach both halves of an introductory course in U.S. history. The first half goes from the pre-colonial times to the end of the Civil War, and then from the end of the Civil War to the present. And I have been trying to persuade my colleagues in the history department here that we need to change that division, in part because the division was made about 80 years ago when there was a whole lot less of the second half of the course, but also it does violence to any understanding of what the Civil War was about and how it turned out. Because it certainly tends to convey the opinion that as of 1865, all those problems were finished. Well, they weren't at all. And I wanted an individual that would span the gap, that would carry the story. And the one who leaped immediately to mind was Ulysses Grant. And in this case, so I will say that my the title of my biography of Andrew Jackson was not very imaginative. It was just Andrew Jackson,
0: <laughs>
2: a life. And, and the, the a life was insisted upon by the marketing people. And I posed and, Andrew Jackson, you think, what? It's, what is it not going to be besides a life? It turns <laughs> out, though, that there was more to this than I understood. Because by the time I got around to writing about Ronald Reagan, who was the last one, volume six, and the last one I wrote, then the marketing people didn't say Reagan a life. It was Reagan, the life. This is the one you want. <laughs> anyway, so with, uh, with Grant, it's, the title is The Man Who Saved the Union. And there again, I, I think I'm able to convey the theme of the story in the title. I wrote about Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt, the title is a traitor to his class. And then with Reagan, it's just Reagan, the life. So these are my six volumes. I'm going to say sort of a couple of things about uh, what I tried to accomplish with this. Well, I wanted to cover the story of American history, but I also have, I have developed my own, I'm not going to call it a theory of history, but it's an observation about history. And It's one that I share with my students, and that is I draw a distinction between what I call big history and little history. And big history is the stuff you typically read about in the history books. It's the history of wars and presidential elections and industrial revolutions and the fall of old regimes and, and all this sort of big stuff, and little history is the history of daily life, of the history of individual lives. And it's the history, as I tell my students, history of you and you and you and you and you. And one of the interesting things to me about biography, one of the compelling things about biography, it's where big history and and little history intersect. Because I certainly do not believe, as Thomas Carlyle and various other people have said, that history is just the biography of great men. No, no, it's much more than that. But it certainly is the case that there are individuals to whom just the most unusual thing happens, just great accidents happen, and if they didn't happen that way, then history would have turned out quite differently. And um, I'll give one example. Um, I wrote about Franklin Roosevelt. If Franklin Roosevelt had not contracted polio in the early 1920s, then. Very likely, the history of the United States and conceivably the world during the next 25 years would have been quite different. I'll just give you the quick scenario. Franklin Roosevelt was the most attractive Democratic politician in the United States as of 1920. He was on the ticket with James Cox that lost badly to the Republicans. But Roosevelt came out of there as the odds-on favorite to get the Democratic nomination the next time around. And if he had gotten the Democratic nomination in 1924, he would have gone down to defeat. The 1920s were a Republican era. And by that time in American politics, if you lose as the the headliner on the ticket, if you lose as the the vice presidential candidate, no problem. But if you lose as a headliner, you're probably not going to get another chance. So quite likely, Franklin Roosevelt never would have become president of the United States. At a more personal level, Franklin's, Roosevelt's, exposure to, and his struggle with polio made him much more able to understand the essence of America's struggle during the Great Depression. And the, the essential part of what the Depression meant for millions of Americans was that bad things can happen to good people through no fault of their own. And people saw their their bank accounts disappear, their nest eggs go up, they were thrown out of work, they were made homeless, and they had not done anything wrong. And Franklin Roosevelt is some, was someone who contracted polio and spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair through no fault of his own. Before this, Roosevelt gave every indication of being someone who sort of thought the world had been handed to him on a silver platter. Things came very easily to him. After that, things came to him very hard that 's just just one thing. one last thing that I will say, and that is that one of the enduring appeals of biography is precisely that it 's not history and this because this might, might be lost in this audience, because again, most of you are interested in history, but most people are not interested in history. Most people remember their history their high school history class, and they do not have a fond memory of it. and I've, Some of you might have heard me say this before, but Many people, this is especially true in Texas, but I hear this in other states as well. They can't remember the, the last name of their high school history teacher, but they're pretty sure that the first name was Coach. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is, this is why, I mean, when I talk to people, if I say that I'm writing a history of so and so, it doesn't take long before the eyes to glaze over, for the eyes to start glazing over. But if you say you're writing the life of somebody, well, nobody has bad memories of a high school biography class, because they never had such a thing. But the other thing is that the biography is the genre of nonfiction, I think, that is probably closest to the novel. One of, I use this thought experiment, if, if the tornado should sort of blow through a town, and tear the roof off the library or a bookstore. And you wander through the next morning. All the books are scattered. And they're just lying open on the floor. And you're walking along. And you just look down from sort of head level down. And you see the books. They're lying open. How can you tell the novels from the works of nonfiction without actually reading either the titles or reading anything, just from the appearance of the pages? How can you tell? No pictures. Well, it might be no pictures. So there's that. There, but there's something else just about the way pages. What do you have in novels that you typically don't have in nonfiction? Date. Dialogue. Okay, and the dialogue is the back and forth. He said, she said, and in you know, in American and in British publishing, you know, one uh, new speaker gets a new paragraph, and you could just tell this. Well, with biographies, you can get almost the equivalent of dialogue. Because your subjects speak. You can get inside their head. They leave diaries. They write letters. And so you get a kind of conversation going in a biography that you don't very often see in a standard work of history. And so it's one of the things that makes it more appealing. Going circling back to my original mercenary motive, I was paying attention to what books were on the bestseller lists. And almost never were they just a straight work of history. But biographies, you would find those there. And that's where I wanted to be. I'll stop there. Thank you.
3: Yep. Well, I'm going to be a little brief. Uh, I don't think we have that much time left in our in our afternoon. Yeah. But because um, I want to leave plenty of time for you guys to ask questions of these really well-seasoned, esteemed writers. Um, In my case, in writing biography, it was the professional career of a person that that I've been writing about. This is my first book, maybe my only book, but it's been a real labor of of love and and intellectual thought for for quite a number of years now. Um, I didn't start thinking that I would write biography. Um, What I started with were a couple of questions that were were driving me. What I write about is um, the field of library and archives conservation, which is a field I've been in for for 35 years now. And I had some really central questions that kept nagging at me um, that had to do with why was it that library and archives conservation took so long to become to achieve professional status relative to the field of art conservation. Art conservation entered the academy around 1960. It took library and archives conservation, and, and there were three programs in art conservation in the country, and it took until uh, 1981 until the issues of preserving library and archives materials um, got to the point where uh, there was a thought that there should be professionalization of the field to care for these materials, 1981. It, uh, program opened at Columbia University. Concomitantly, it's been really hard for this particular field to stay in the academy. And I had some ideas you know about why that was so. I'd been teaching in this particular field for 10 years at the point these questions became just <laughs> nagging to me. and I was directing the only program in the United States that was um, teaching preservation administrators and library and archives conservators. And so um, I finally got to a point in my life when I said I can't answer these questions. I have, I'd had coach history from high school <laughs> and had managed to, in, uh, in college to take two community college courses in history to get out of taking history and, uh, because I thought it was so boring. And as I got older, I realized how, how intrigued I was by history and um, decided to get a Ph.D. later in life in American Studies here at the University of Texas, and which personally opened up a whole new world for me and more critically gave me the historical grounding I needed to understand what was going on in the country um, at the time in terms of uh, you know the Cold War, um, post-war, post-war professionalization. Um, ideas of, of what, what is progressive in terms of information, the information age versus the old analog age, um, within library schools and, uh, and some of the impetuses that were, were preventing the, ac- the academy from accepting this, what had been a craft, say, bookbinding field, for so many years, a craft or trade bookbinding field that came to us from you know from Germany and, and the UK and France. Um, so. But here, here, here's what I realized after a while was that the heart, I couldn't get at these answers, without looking closely at the life of a man named Paul Banks, who had been the primary champion, of educating library and archives conservators in the academy, between the years of 1960 and 1980. It took him 20 years of beating against the wall, and, um, I. I knew that if I looked at his writings, his life, all of his records spoke with I spoke with about 30 or so different people who knew him and, and were involved in the scene at that time that I would because he had been so central to the activity that I would begin to ferret out what was going on because he was corresponding with everybody who could help him at these you know different junctures when he was trying to uh, get funding for this to be in the academy. So I ended up writing what's kind of a a professional biography, but more more critically, I I use him as a lens. He's like a primary lens, and so uh, to to sort of this world of ideas, to people, to connections, to um, a larger history. And so someone told me when I started writing this. Well, if you're going to write biography, the guy's name needs to be on every single page in your book. Well, he's not on every single page in my book. Mm-hmm. And you know, I would say that is definitely not something that you have to do. I don't. I'm interesting what you guys have to say, but um, he's not there every page. I think it would be deadly to have Paul on every page. Um, so, so. Um, but like Bill and Bat, now you know, I've had to wrestle with the fact that they're are necessary limitations on what we can actually know about any given human being, whether they're still living or they're deceased and that making sense of the written record of person's writings, correspondence, notes never creates a totally clear picture on any level. Um, it's just like being married, right? I mean, how well do you really? I mean, I've been married 30 years, but there's so many things I continue to learn about the person I'm married to. Well, try writing about a dead person. You know, I mean, it's 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 really difficult. So I found it really um, difficult to read these nuances of human communication. Um, and while oral interviews with the people who knew um, banks were incredibly helpful, you run into these issues of people's memories being vague or more nostalgic than reflective. Um, and that's something that I, perhaps if I were a better oral interviewer, I could have you know, gotten more out of people. But, I, but I'll explain that in a minute. Um, few people want to be quoted if they're going to say something negative. So that was also you know, a little problematic. You have to figure out how to work with that. Um, There's no crystal ball then that reveals the full range of nuances that enter into this picture where we're trying to figure out human action in the world. So in the end what we we all end up doing as biographers is um, interpreting and balancing, right? It's a lot of interpretation. um, And balancing the resources we have at our disposal, shoring them up with multiple perspectives and secondary resources. And sometimes you just go out on a limb. You know, you get to know your person well enough and you're, uh, when you're writing biography, you're just kind of living this person's life for a very long time. They're like in your head all the time. So I, I tried to distill quickly um, the factors that made my work both at times easier and at times more difficult. And one for me was uh, that my person was deceased, yet I knew him because he was my teacher in grad school and later he was a colleague. Hence, I brought to my work all of these memories of a very generous person, but also some very boring classes, and knowing that he was a very tedious person to work with in the workplace. Um, yeah. So, but knowing him a bit um, intrigued me to know more about his life and the, his influence on the field of conservation. But I found myself constantly weighing, was I being fair? Was I being fair? And that, that nagged me, still nags me. And I'm doing final edits to this book with my publisher, and it's still nagging me. Am I being fair? Um, uh, so, in having colleagues who knew banks read select chapters did help me to sort of balance, you know, make sure I asked them to critically look, am I being fair here? And I'm like, yeah, you know, <clears throat> thankfully the feedback is, yeah, you've been fair. I'm writing about a field that I've been part of 35 years. So this allows me to have perspective and insight and opinions. So while I, I trust that my work is going to be received as a contribution to our field's history, it's undoubtedly going to raise a few eyebrows here and there and I'll be eager to see the the reviews. I don't expect to sell more than 200 books, Bill, <laughs> but i am um, be eager to see what reviews come in. Um, but I, again, Speaking of types of biography, this is what is called a critical biography. So um, I'm absolutely scrupulous to the um, consternation of my editor and publisher that I have notes, justifications, um, they're scrupulously throughout my notes um, so that I have multiple sources I'm using Um, and then if I'm sort of going on a limb somewhere, I'll note that in a note, here's what I'm trying to balance. So, uh, and I do at one point in my book actually say, you know, this is all such nuanced stuff. I'm, I'm trying hard to read this, so bear with me. Um, on the other hand, being part of the field gives me some blind spots, of course, that I've had to work through. The things that I was really fighting against were, were things that we've normalized in our field. And that I, I, you know, actually, this is what kind of led me down this path were these sort of normalized things that I was teaching in the classroom and, and just started questioning over and over again. Like, why do we think about it this way? Why do we call it that? What got us here to this moment where we do it this way? Um, so, um, finally, um, one of the other things I had to struggle with initially in my project. Was where to draw the line between Paul Banks as an individual who acts in the personal realm of his life from the person who's wearing his hat as a professional in the public sphere. So, certainly, any biographical account has to understand what personally motivates someone to think and act in the ways that they do. I mean, the same person that acts out in the world, uh, who plays tennis, who does whatever. I knew I'd catch your attention, Tom Staley, um, <laughs> is the same person as that walks into the workplace every day. Um, we may put on a different persona when we walk into these different areas of our life, but essentially there's that essential core and personality that's there that, that drives what we do. So, I'm going to give you a couple examples of where I had these difficulties. Um, Paul Banks was gay and he was out in 1956. So. Yeah, very very interesting, and he—I mean—be out in '56. Yeah, not not an easy time. So I couldn't figure out at first why he decided at a very very young age, after not finishing his undergraduate degree in printing management, to move to New York City. And this is where you know this is where you have to know history, right? He moved to the um, the east, uh, the Lower East Side which is now called the East Village, but at that point in time was not called the East Village. And it was a very creative, open <laughs> world there. And um, I think he, at that, he was young. He was 21 or two year, 1 years old, I think. And he was looking for acceptance. He had had a rough childhood. I didn't get much into his childhood because that it doesn't yield anything for the story I'm writing, except that he had a childhood he never spoke about, yeah. ever and there were a few inklings that there were some real issues there with his father. He never really engaged with his father after he left Southern California. So he, he went to New York City. The story is he goes to New York City to be a printer and um, you know to, to learn this, this new field of, of bookbinding come conservation, but there's a lot of other reasons that take him there and position him in a certain place to, to be nurtured and to grow intellectually. So I do you know bring that out. Um, there is another instance where he repeatedly turned down an offer to head up a new, con- the premier conservation operation at the Library of Congress. And this was around 1970, at a time when of course it was still illegal to be gay and work in the federal government. So the story is that Banks says that Um, he didn't want to get involved in a highly bureaucratic organization, but I suspect that he also might have felt um, some concern placing himself in that particular organization. So, um, and one last thing and then I'm going to – oh, that's it. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop right there. (laughs)